welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History. Uh, today I'm talking to Duncan Stone, the author of Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket, and published by Repeater Books at the end of last year, but I think it's got a 2022 publication date from, from memory. So hi Duncan. Uh, good afternoon. So before I talk to Duncan, I just want to flag up for listeners that the Call for Papers is now open for the Society's Conference, um, which will take place this year, uh, 2022, if you're listening to this in the future, um, at De Montfort University in Leicester from the 24th to the 26th of August. Um, so if you look up uh, the SSH um, conference or if you go to our website at um, www.sportinghistory.org, you'll be able to find all of the details um, for that conference there. But back to today's business. Uh, Dr. Duncan Stone is a historian and sociologist who writes about the development and meaning of contemporary social and cultural identities and the cultural war over the legitimate practice and meaning of sporting activity. He completed his PhD, Cricket, Competition and the Amateur Ethos, Surrey and the Home Counties, 1870-1970, at the University of Huddersfield, after taking a Master's in the Sociology of Sport at the University of Leicester. Um, Duncan, first of all, I want to say how much I enjoyed reading the book. And um, this, one of the sections, and I enjoyed it throughout, but one of the sections I really enjoyed um, because it made a nice change from some academic books was your description of your own experience of playing cricket as a youngster. Um, can you sort of talk about that a bit more for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks for saying, uh, you know, thanks for, in I'm glad you enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, for me, uh, my introduction to cricket was a bit mixed. So there was, you know, my granddad, my dad, and my uncle all played uh, you know, league cricket uh, in Surrey, where I'm, uh, where I'm from. And I obviously grew up when it was freely available on the BBC throughout the summer. Uh, and cricket was just something that us sort of working class kids did. You know, we were very fortunate. We sort of grew up in this little uh, cul-de-sac and there were, you know, people were at best a, a one-car family at that time so we could play you know whatever was on tv that's what we were playing so if it was a european championships because obviously there wasn't other than uh, the big match on a sunday afternoon uh, there wasn't much football on uh, but cricket was one thing that we were exposed to you know much like wimbledon uh, and whatever was on we'd be playing that and yeah i'd be dragged along to watch dad and uncle uh, you know, Uncle Doug and Grandad, uh, very briefly, uh, play. Uh, Grandad died when I was only about five or six, so I've got scant memories of that. Uh, but it was uh, probably much like uh, anyone sort of growing up in the North. It was a sort of a community game played, you know, in a league format. Uh, and then I obviously got to an age where I would join a club uh, but we'd we were sort of as a family quite sort of upwardly mobile and we had moved from the you know Bryanston Grove to um, this uh, quite affluent village you know detached houses in Normandy uh, and I sort of joined the Colts there but it was nothing like the clubs that my dad or granddad had played for uh, it was you know like the village itself it was a little bit 
up itself maybe yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I can say that and uh, much like in any other walk of life it was it wasn't what you know or how good you were uh, it was who you knew and yeah. I would be persistently overlooked uh, for the boys whose dads uh, played for the club yeah even though I think I was certainly better than half of them uh, and it's weird since the book come out uh, you know, it sort of stirred some memories in mum and she was saying, you know, on one of the rare occasions that they was picked to play, I didn't get a bat, I didn't get a bowl. And then the bloke who was running it asked me, who hadn't contributed to the match, to go around and collect all the boundary markers. Right. And it was, you know, I don't remember her sort of saying anything at the time, uh, but I had a similar experience with sports school, actually. Uh, and I just... I remember an experience at uh, basketball. Mm. We never actually played cricket or football at my comprehensive. Our games teachers were just basketball and softball, believe it or not, in the summer. Yeah, we used to do that as well. And um, I mean, to be fair, the year above us were English under-16 champions. But we used to play teams from London. We'd stuck, you know, we'd hung around all afternoon because they'd been delayed. And, you know, basketball was a game where you've got rolling substitutes. And I never got on. And then the car on the way home, Dad just said, you are never playing for them again. And it was a similar thing with uh, Normandy. But I made that decision myself. I thought, I've got better things to do with my time. Uh, and then I walked away from, from the game for almost 10 years and then got back into it, uh, you know, through a workmate. And, and obviously I was old enough to drink and go for curries or Chinese meals afterwards and never really looked back after that. <laughs> <laughs> do you recognize because i'm thinking when you were talking about how um how you had to pick the right club to play for in order to feel like you belonged do you mm. recognize any like what because clr james talks about that doesn't he in the caribbean oh, yes where, yeah. where there's such a fine gradation of clubs who could play for clubs who who um and if you were good maybe you would be able to get into a certain club do, mm. do you see any analogy between the situation in Surrey and the situation in uh, Trinidad, that would have been? Uh, I don't think it would be, obviously, down to just how black or brown you were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think it was quite as um, stark, if we could use that word. But, yeah. yes, definitely, the difference between what were essentially the sort of the working class or village teams that me, granddad, uncle and dad played for and the Normandy experience, uh, it, there was definitely a sort of a socioeconomic uh, barrier and it boiled down to culture. Um, I'm not saying, I mean, I, I, there was one coach at Normandy, Bernie Hobbs, who I do recall, although one of my mates has a very different recollection of him, uh, but I recall him being very encouraging. You mm. know, um, so it wasn't a complete disaster or a waste of time. But as one of my interviewees, Alf Langley, who uh, arrived as a 15-year-old from um, uh, Jamaica to London, as he experienced when he joined um, you know, club cricket, the mainstream white club cricket, he just found the culture of the more established or elitist clubs, if we can call them that, uh, what was his word? It was unbearable. 
Right. <laughs> and then it wasn't until he his mate, uh, Gary Black, who, who happens to be white, uh, told him about his experiences and, and the laugh he was having at Shepherd's Bush that he made the switch and then Shepherd's Bush became, um, you know, famous for being one of the first clubs in London to field uh, majority black, uh, you know, teams in, in senior club cricket in London. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, obviously culture is important and this is, we'll maybe touch on this later mm. when we talk about race more broadly, but obviously culture is a big barrier for, uh, you know, particularly Muslim players because they don't prop up the bar. But yeah. as I've said on other interviews recently, uh, and as I said to you a moment before we started recording, I help run a football team locally and actually people in football invariably just disappear straight after the final whistle. Yeah. Uh, because it's, you know, and again, I touched on this in the book, you know, the history of, uh, you know, how acceptable or unacceptable drink driving is between the past and today. Uh, you know, it's beyond the pale now, but it was almost an expecta expectation of the sociability that came with playing cricket. Uh, particularly amongst uh, some of the sort of elite clubs, which had their own like little niche uh, where they would only play each other, um, you know, before the advent of leagues. Yeah. Well, it's also about changing gender roles as well, isn't it? So, mm, yes. Even when I first, did, first started playing football, men were not, you know, it wasn't expected that you'd come straight back after football and help out with the kids or whatever. It was kind no. of... I mean, stay out afterwards. But I've noticed as I've got old and grizzled, <laughs> um, younger players with families prioritise their families, and that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not absolutely, gonna, yeah. I mean, uh, it's definitely a societal change over the last 30, 40 years, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I first started playing football seriously in the early 90s, I mean, there was the lads who were just that sort of like 10, 15 years older than me. Mm. You know, I was a young and they were, you know, the senior players their families would never see them <laughs> and we still have the conversation sort of on a semi-regular basis down the pub uh, it was just they, they were probably the last generation to fully uh, dare we say get away with it yeah. Uh, yeah and then my sort of generation once the dominoes all started falling and uh, they they all started getting married we were sort of a mix some disappeared never to be seen again and yet some were still able to sort of get the balance right. But they're all now coming out the other side because their kids are all now going to university and whatnot. So they're free again. The sad thing is they're too old to play. <laughs> well, my, my growing up and I'm still plugging away at five sides at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I manage, I manage five sides on a Monday, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, See, so you obviously grew up playing a lot of sport and then were playing a lot of sport in your 20s. Um, what made you decide to go into the Masters and choose cricket as a subject for your Masters? Mm, well, I used to be a forensic photographer for Surrey Police. And uh, as much as uh, basically dead people didn't over overly bother me, uh, there was one particular murder scene where I was... I just thought, I'm not doing this for another 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as much as everybody since, since, you know, the advent of CSI 
whatever on the TV, silent witness, you know, everybody seems to be really into it now and they're all falling over themselves to do degrees. Um, I just thought, nah, I, I, it was beginning to change me mm. as a person, you know, and even now I, there is a legacy. There's been a sort of a price to pay for that. And I thought, well, what am I going to do instead? And I was a, a semi-regular purchaser of uh, When Saturday Comes, the what I describe uh, as the private eye of football magazines, because uh, it was quite a serious, yet humorous uh, yeah. publication. And at the back, there was an advert for the Centre for Research into Sport and Society at Leicester University. And I just thought, you know, because I'm not married uh, with kids and I had obviously some savings. I thought, well, that might be interesting. Uh, it, but it was just an excuse to get away from, you know, Surrey Police, as good a job as it was. Yeah. Uh, and they accepted me despite the fact uh, I didn't have an undergraduate degree or even A-levels uh, on the basis of a an essay that I wrote, uh, a critical essay uh, on something that they'd written about the, P, uh, the FA. And then I was all earnest and wanting to do something about disability sport or, you know, I wanted to do something worthwhile. And then, you know, we were in the bar afterwards and my sort of peer group were just saying, it isn't you, Duncan. <laughs> you got to do something that you actually... A genuinely interested don't do something because you feel obligated to do that research yeah. as worthy as it may be and I, my mind went back to one of the early lectures we had uh, about identity mm. and obviously this is a sociology degree and back in 2001 as I say in the book um, research into sport be it sociology or history was pretty basic at that stage and the whole lecture revolved around national identities and nationalism you know surrounding like football hooliganism which they were really into at Leicester mm -hmm. uh, and mega events like the Olympics and while uh, Professor Waddington was doing his bit in my head I was a bit like Homer Simpson I was little plan uh, I was thinking of the Yorkshire supporters at Headingley yeah. Chanting ad nauseum. Yorkshire, Yorkshire. So I, I just asked him, I said, well, what about regional identities? And he said, well, nobody does it. And that was a red rag to a bull. Uh, and from there on in, I did a survey of 200 supporters of Surrey and 200 supporters of Yorkshire for my dissertation and um, looked at, you know, why two... You know, they're both emblematic of cricket, Surrey and Yorkshire, but why did they have such diametrically opposite regional cricket identities? Mm. Yeah. And that's what I looked at. I think that's what really underpins um, certainly the beginning in the central section of the book, isn't it? Is this mm. uh, yes. analysis of the difference in cricket between the north and the south and how the southern kind of, well, southern non-middle class cricket just kind of disappears in popular mm. consciousness doesn't it so people think of you know public school cricket or you know that kind of figure or they think of the the dour northerners and you saw yorkshire lancashire and somehow surrey and, and speaking for myself like essex yeah yeah kind of, they don't really 
you know, people don't think of them as being sort of cricket, well, certainly Essex, I would say, crickety places. No. So can you talk some more about how you analyse the, the development of that difference and why the North does develop this particular culture around leagues and how in the South that doesn't quite take hold? Or yes, so in a nutshell, for people who aren't sort of cricket savvy, um, the sort of the stereotypical regional identities of cricket in the North and Yorkshire in particular is that it's urban, industrial environment where they play professional or at least semi-professional uh, leagues that is commercially organised and the sort of underlying, uh, I suppose, foundational bit of that culture is that it's working class and above all else, it's overtly competitive. Mm. The image of cricket in the South, as you allude to, it's the rural idyll, it's amateur or gentlemanly, so by the same, by extension, middle or upper class. Uh, it's not because it's amateur organised along any sort of commercial um, way, and it is has this image as a non-competitive or friendly version of the game. So you've got two diametrically opposite. So what the survey revealed is that there was actually some real world um, truth, albeit just a hint uh, in that image. Uh, however, the and it, and it sort of manifested itself in fact that Yorkshire supporters and Surrey supporters, but only marginally, attribute completely different meanings to the game. Yeah. So the meaning of cricket in Yorkshire at least to the Yorkshire supporters is that cricket was about region place and community all the good things and down in Surrey the Surrey reporters the majority albeit slim regarded cricket in more abstract terms and it was just a game or a way of life and you can argue that that is an extension of the amateur ethos that dominated Surrey and the home counties. And obviously the limitations of the sociological approach meant I had to sort of basically go along with what I regard as a, as a, as a slightly flawed orthodox history as to why that was. Yeah. I didn't have a scope, especially in a master's degree, to really go any further than that as interesting as the findings were. So after a seven year gap, that's where the PhD at Huddersfield came in. And initially it was gonna be a comparative study, again, between Surrey and Yorkshire, but that, as was very rapidly pointed out to me, that was basically doing two PhDs. Right. <laughs> so the Yorkshire element was dropped entirely. And then we decided, because there had already been a fair bit of academic work on you know, Jeff Hill's work on cricket in the leagues and uh, yeah. uh, Dave, David Russell's stuff on Yorkshire as well, albeit that's only three papers, but there we go. Um, so we looked at Surrey because that was deemed to be the far more interesting sort of research question, you know, why didn't they play in leagues when seemingly everyone else was playing in leagues? And I had to basically go through and I, I basically put adverts in newspapers yeah. uh, that because there was no existing archive. 
uh, for this sort of thing. And I basically put an ad in the Sorry Advertiser and I was surprised in the amount of response. And then I met a key player, um, Ray Cotton, who's well into his 90s now. And it, literally the first person I met and he brought a handful of minute books. Right. Which had never seen the light of day before. Like a historian's <laughs> dream, isn't it? When somebody oh, brings and, uh, you know, yeah, archive to you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, it, and, it was, and it wasn't just like a club minute book. It was the Surrey Association of Cricket Clubs. And literally the first page was a meeting at the Oval, league cricket, strongly approved of from 1949. And I'm like, hmm, well, league cricket didn't finally materialise until 1968. So it was like a detective story. Why, in the first instance, was league cricket decried and effectively banned by an organisation called the Club Cricket Conference? And thanks to them for allowing me access to their minute books as well, which I doubt anyone had looked at seriously for many decades. Um, and then it was sort of following it through and, and the luck involved, I can't tell you, Jeff. <laughs> I, I, I was attending uh, a BSSH conference down at Eastbourne. Can't remember what year that was, but it was right at the very, very beginning of my sort of PhD research. And we went into a secondhand bookstore uh, in Eastbourne and I picked up three books and absolute, like books you'd never have heard of. Uh, and, you know, I'm just look, flicking through if they got an index like we all do now, yeah. cut, and I look up league cricket and there's some, particularly the weekend cricket by uh, ACL Bennett, an absolute goldmine. Because he he was there on a time and he was talking about the 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 emergence of the uh, new cricket associations during the post-war period and how they actively tried to reintroduce league cricket to the south and how in no uncertain terms the elite clubs and the club cricket conference consciously clubbed together. Uh, in order to stop other clubs from doing what they wished. Yeah. And as uh, Abby Rhodes, who did a lovely review for the book in uh, Tribune, uh, said, you know, that the extent that the development of cricket has essentially relied on the maintenance of class structures is remarkable. And that's essentially what I throughout the book up to the latter chapters that is what the story I'm telling but in many respects I'm telling the story about England or English society as a whole you could substitute the word cricket and in, you know for any other sort of aspects of civil society and the way that the middle and upper classes have maintained their power through essentially insider dealing or mm -hmm. at worst ignoring the wishes of the public is staggering <laughs> the the sense of ownership that these classes felt they had over the game and it's their words i'm quoting back in the book not my i haven't just made this up it is actually remarkable when you see it when you read it back in a in a, a modern context um because nothing's changed for all the momentous events of the 20th century the same people are in charge not just the cricket 
that you any other British institution you care to mention. So yes, you could, even if you're not strictly interested in the story of cricket per se, you could read this as a just a social history of England. Yeah. And you know, I'd like to hope people go, wow. <laughs> no, I, I mean know that. <laughs> the the story that you tell about um how there's like basically the war shakes up cricket doesn't it and so mm. come back and they start playing again and people are saying well why aren't we playing competitive cricket we yeah. want to do that especially so, in light of the uh, uh 1948 ashes yeah against bradman's invincibles yeah yeah <laughs> and so that's such a strong section where you're taking it through from the 40s to the 60s to the 70s really the, mm. the, the attempts to overturn that kind of amateur ideology yeah um but also that post-war story is also the story of um ethnic minorities playing cricket in this country obviously mm. and yeah. rush, and how important work-based cricket was to kind of integrating um immigrants into social activities and that is such a such an interesting story can you just kind of um elaborate on that slightly because it's one of the one of the most original parts of your book i think oh lovely thanks uh it's obviously workplace welfare and i mention it sort of has a history dating back to the 18th century uh, has been an integral part of um you know worker owner boss relationships for for centuries uh but a lot of these were you know very hard fought or hard won uh, benefits. But broadly speaking, you know, pre Thatcher, we had uh, an, an employment culture which was broadly speaking quite benevolent mm. um, for all, you know, you know, three day weeks and winters of discontent and things like that. Um, you could, you were, as long as you did your work, you know, you were well looked for and certain industries. Uh, police forces, for instance, you know, my experience of Surrey police was, you know, we used to play football and cricket regular against other forces, or we would have the inter police station, or I represented headquarters cricket tournament, the Sant Cup. And that's the sort of thing that went across many, many industries. But in terms of you know multiracial sport uh you had certain sectors particularly public transport mm. where it was the most successful example of you know what we would call race relations in the country mm. in any context um you still had the odd incidents where certain like bus depots and that might insist on having a white captain still mm. <laughs> despite the fact you know it's the old amateur days they they die hard those sort of things uh, but eventually certain clubs you know particularly london transport uh, you would have essentially all black teams but they were playing national at what was actually the largest amateur uh, cricket competition in the country prior to uh, the formation of the cricketers uh, village cup uh, but then, of course, this integration uh, started to decline once we, post-1979, when we had, obviously, a prolonged period of the industrialization or the privatization uh, of certain industries. And that meant, under, you know, the corporatist rules, uh, is that 
valuable but unprofitable assets uh, like sports grounds mm. were very quickly sold off. Uh, and of course, you know, that sort of paternalistic uh, relationship between, you know, the bosses and the workers, uh, you know, declined. And, and, and unfortunately, it's been a race to the bottom line. And it's now almost universally profit before people. And regrettably, sport, and in particular, participation in cricket has plummeted because of that. Uh, and it's a real shame because, you know, I'm I'm probably part of the last generation to fully enjoy uh, what workplace sport had to offer. Yeah. You know, even yeah. including a day off <laughs> yeah. certain occasions. Wednesday afternoons. That's so, it, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thinking about when the book was published, I mean, it was I was reviewing it for Sporting History, or I was reading it to, to write the review just before Christmas, I think it was. Or That's maybe it, yeah. And it was right in the middle of the Azim Rafiq affair. So, and it just, like reading it, especially the final section, I was impressed with how quickly you got the book out because it, it goes into quite a lot of detail about the Azim Rafiq affair and well this um, was uh it wasn't i mean it was pretty much written but because i'm not with you know random house or or yeah. Routledge, um you know repeater gave me the scope to edit the text literally three days before it actually right. went to the printers yeah because it feels very kind of um yeah it feels very um very fresh um but, yes but the, but the interesting thing is that so much of the kind of the so many of the themes of the Azim Rafiq affair are have deep roots in the history of cricket so it's it, it's it's something that's happening now but has roots going way back can you just talk about how you kind of an, analyze how this comes out of the culture of Yorkshire cricket and the situation that Yorkshire find themselves in now Mm, yeah, sort of. So the last two chapters mm. predominantly deal more with race uh, than class, which I, mm. I still think is the overriding factor in terms of cricket and access to cricket. Uh, but again, you go back to my interviewee, Alf Langley, and his experience uh, and, and of, of how important culture is. Culture remains a really big stumbling block. And as much as racism has always been a factor uh, in English cricket, I actually think it has got worse mm. in recent years. And I think, although, you know, I can only imply it, that I think it coincides with the sort of neoliberal approach and certainly uh, events that have followed the Brexit referendum in 2016. Mm. Um, but it's also the ECB again because they're now they're not running uh, English cricket as a governing body they're running it as a business I mean yeah. again it's profit before people and certainly uh, the spectators so the ECB's inability to identify uh, the issues let alone I mean I mean they've only reluctantly admitted or, you know, almost under oath at the DCMS inquiry uh, that obviously Yorkshire is institutionally racist. Mm. Yorkshire County Cricket Club, that is. Um, 
and it's it's just again it's it's the it's a family with the wrong people in charge and as i allude to in the book roland bowen 50 years ago said there is no way english cricket is going to escape its elitist pretensions while you've still got people in the long run at lords who are from a, you know they're white middle-aged privately educated men who much like the old gentleman amateur generation you know the pelham warners and the lord hawks of this world have always run the game by and for themselves in their own image mm. and that has left cricket particularly in terms of race with a real problem because now you att people who attend first class cricket now are overwhelmingly white um with jobs that you would male who with jobs that you would suggest would suggest that they are uh, middle or upper class mm. now if you've got young asian kids playing street cricket in bradford and even if they have sky and they're watching a bunch of white privately educated lads representing england and worse coming onto the field to the strains of jerusalem they're pretty unlikely to identify <laughs> with the national team because the national team is not representative i mean they represent us yeah they are not representative of us and this is i explain in those final chapters why you know and just how high it goes in that the culture and as i said to somebody else you know the fetishization of english cricket as this rural idyll where you have to have you know a well-appointed or picturesque ground with a nice grass wicket and pavilion and maybe a pub in the corner that pretty much excludes a very large proportion <laughs> of society particularly those who play in a city cricket yeah. and invariably they are those people are overwhelmingly black or british uh, south asian yeah so yeah. The, the barriers are just legion there's just and again it warrants a book of its own uh, but it's not as if there hasn't been any research done the mere fact is is that um, you know the ecb themselves were unaware of thomas fletcher's report that they had funded <laughs> so how are we going to if they're not even paying attention to the stuff that they're, you know, that would suggest that they're just paying lip service to the problem. Yeah. If they're not even reading the stuff that they're funding. And this is another reason why I didn't want to publish my research under an academic title. Uh, because obviously Russell Holden has got a book out mm. uh, over in the last month, which deals with class, cricket and race. Uh, in this country but it's not or it's unlikely to reach the audience that it deserves because it's stuck behind an 80 to 100 pound paywall yeah and as you well know I've argued long and hard that I think historians or sports historians in particular because we deal with a popular subject should look to publish popular histories and that might mean, you know, encouraging people to consider, you know, publishers like Repeater mm. 
or, or, or anyone else. I mean, there was at one stage I was having a, a brief or and the pandemic kiboshed it basically, but I was having a flirtation with uh, Orion. So I, I was very nearly with one of the big publishing houses. But uh, as I say, the pandemic sort of kiboshed that. But I'm glad I, I've, I've definitely found because I have written this with a political agenda and repeater is the perfect publisher for what I have to say. Uh, and I think, broadly speaking, sports historians should be more activist. You know, otherwise you have to question, why do we do what we do? You know, um, I knew as soon as I'd finished the PhD, I wasn't going to allow it to just gather dust. I knew I'd unearthed a bigger story that, although it took me a further, well, 13 years in total, if you include the PhD, to finish this book, it was an itch I had to scratch. And I think, and I'm sure there must be other researchers dealing with aspects of sport who must have something equally, I, I like to think, profound and, and important to say. And I think it should be said in a more as public a forum as possible. Um, but there are there are people out there who are who do manage to straddle both the, the academy and the popular market, or at least write um, in a way that um, a, a wider audience would enjoy. Mm -hmm. I yeah. And I think that you know things like the podcast that we're doing now; these are all attempts to try and reach those two different audiences yes. who have different demands um, from from what we do as historians. Mm. But I'd say that the book is um, it's very good. And I don't agree with everything in there, but then that's, <laughs> that's one of its strengths because uh, nobody wants to read something where they're just nodding their heads all the time. Yes. You know, you might as well stare in the mirror and yeah. start talking to yourself. Um, so <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was gonna, you know, particularly with, uh, well, the people who run the game mm. and the people, many of the people who, present the game in the media <laughs> yeah i think we both know who i'm talking about uh will detest the book yeah and many you know quote unquote uh, traditionalists will struggle as well because i am challenging people's fundamental beliefs yeah know? no I'm, I'm i've reviewed it for bssh or sporting history the journal because oh, i've seen your review in yeah uh, and you obviously pull me up on the fact that uh i don't really talk about women uh, in the book uh, and the, the regrettable thing is it just wasn't an aspect of the story that I wanted to tell mm. and further to that you know we've got people like Raph Nicholson and I, I just felt feel more comfortable leaving it to the experts yeah I think if I tried to sort of again it's that trying to be earnest and you know right on <laughs> yeah. I reckon had I put a sort of a section on women's cricket in for the sake of it it would it would have stuck out like a sore thumb you didn't want to do a token job and no and, and I think the, the subject that you did for the other sections yeah and I think it, as you know and I you and I both know you know it is a subject that warrants very serious attention uh, and I think Raf's got another book. She's got a second book coming out, hasn't she? Yeah. So uh, I'm sure she's got it covered. <laughs> <laughs> sort of thinking about you've published now, and um, do you have anything else in the pipeline? Uh, 
or are you just taking a rest and sort of letting your brain sort of cogitate for a while? Or... Uh, I think uh, I do need to sort of organise something. Um, at the moment, it's it's quite nice because, I mean, the book's only been out two months mm. as we speak. And already, I think this is about seventh or eighth sort of podcast that I've done with a, a, another couple of invitations looming. Um so that's been interesting. I've been invited to do talks on uh, cricket and race. Um, some of those are even paid, believe it or not. <laughs> but uh, I can't live on the odd one of those. But um, yeah, as far as academic work or, or, or history of sport is concerned, I may well have, I may, may well be uh, a spent force. Uh, I've said, you know, if you include the Masters, this has been rolling around in my brain for 20 years. Yeah. And I, I think it's a bit like with the photography, with the police. I think I've come to a stage now where maybe, right, you've done it. Yeah. Move on. Um, but you never know. I mean, I've got, I've got a few people that I've been in touch with who are uh, saying that I should do something on the Harringay, the Harringay uh, Cricket Club. And that's oh, yeah. rise and demise um but that's something to sort of mull over i think as you suggest i i, I deserve a bit of a holiday yeah <laughs> <laughs> well congratulations on on the book um i did really enjoy reading it and uh yeah thanks for chatting to me today um for the latest from the bssh uh, you'll find us on twitter or on our website uh, sportinhistory.org you can also find the BSSH Sport and Leisure History Seminar page uh, by going to the IHR's website at history.ac.uk. So, uh, so thanks very much, Duncan. And uh, I'll just say goodbye from both of us. Goodbye.